Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in 2017. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're pleased to welcome in uh, uh, Dr. Ibram Kendi uh, to the program today, uh, brought in by the USU Access and Diversity Center. And uh, his second book, Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, has gotten a lot of buzz. In fact, it won the 2016 National Book Award for Nonfiction. And at 34 years old, uh, Dr. Kendi is the youngest ever winner of the National Book Award for uh, Nonfiction. Um, so congratulations. Welcome to the program. Thanks. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, here's a bit of the blurb for the for the book. Uh, Some Americans cling desperately to the myth that we're living in a post-racial society, that the election of the first black president spelled the doom of racism. In fact, racist thought is alive and well in America, more sophisticated and more insidious than ever. And as award-winning historian Ibram Kendi argues in Stamp from the beginning, if we have any hope of grappling with this stark reality, we must first understand how racist ideas were developed, disseminated, and enshrined in American society. So uh, before I even uh, picked up your book, uh, Dr. Kendi, I, I had this question, how, how will this hope, Dr. Kendi, is going to relate this, connect this to this extraordinary moment we're living in, the, mm-hmm. the uh, election of uh, Donald Trump? which shocked many people, as you, as you write um, in your preface. And indeed, in your preface, you do make that connection. So mm-hmm. I wonder if we could, uh, we could start there. Uh, the, you say in your preface that uh, th- this election left many Americans in shock, and neither of the two popular sort of racial narratives that we have explained it. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe talk about those two racial narratives and, uh, and why they, in brief, don't explain the, the election of Trump and everything that's happened. Sure. And, you know, again, thank you for having me on the show. And, and I think the, the, the two major racial narratives that really allow people to understand America's racial history, the first is this sort of arrival narrative, uh, that the nation has moved past uh, racism, that it's moved into a post-racial society, a ra- post-racial society where racism doesn't exist, where white supremacists do not exist, where their their president is not going to be elected uh, into the White House. And so I think for many people, that narrative was uh, and has continued to be disrupted. Uh, the other racial narrative, which I think is possibly more popular, is this racial progress narrative, this, this narrative that over the course of American history, the, the nation has continuously made steady, forward uh, racial progress as it relates to race. And, and, and the election of, of Barack Obama sort of demonstrated that. Almost, he almost personified that racial progress, and people expected the progress to only continue. And when it hit up against the wall that was Donald Trump, uh, they began to realize that that progress was not continuing and not inevitable. Hmm. You talk about a dueling duality, and and then it's um, you know it's kind of kind of depressing to, to see that. But it, but as as I read your book and 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 thought about it, I thought that's you know it is true that this dueling duality that that uh, every time there's uh, progress you know, with uh, you know anti-racist progress, then racist progress as well. Yeah, and you know I did not necessarily know this dual history of, of, of race in America before I started researching this book. But, but I was trying to sort of understand uh, how could we simultaneously have 
the first black president, which is when I sort of started writing the book, as well as an unprecedented number of black people in prison simultaneously? Or how is it that we have all of these very prominent uh, black people and even uh, wealthy black people uh, while simultaneously having black people being killed unarmed uh, by the police? Like, how is both of these things happening? And I, and I found that what we've actually had has been a dual history of racial progress, continuous racial progress, the racial progress that we know, the racial progress we're continuously taught. But what we're not necessarily taught is that the United States has also experienced what I call racist progress. In other words, racist policies and even racist ideas have progressed, have become even more sophisticated over the course of, of American history. And, and what I mean by sophisticated is they have continuously become hidden from public view, uh, which then allows them to continue uh, because Americans are not resisting them. Mm. How do you define racism? Sure. I th- so I think we, we should understand that racism is the interaction between racist policies and racist ideas. And, and so we, in order to understand racism or the marriage of, of, of racist policies and racist ideas, we have to understand racist policies and, and racist ideas. I define a racist policy as any policy that yields an unequal outcome between racial groups. And I define a racist idea as any idea that suggests a racial group is superior or inferior to another racial group in any way. And the way racist policies interact with racist ideas is when these policies, these racist policies, yield these racially unequal outcome, racist policies are produced to justify that unequal outcome so we won't see that policy and instead we'll see a particular racial group as the problem. Mm. And, and you've, you've hit upon, I want to, uh, to take that up in just about a minute, a, a very interesting idea. Uh, we've, ha- we've had it backwards all these years. But first of all, uh, uh, racial disparities, these, these outcomes, um, and you list some of these uh, in the book. And I, I think, uh, you know, thinking people, uh, this is undeniable. Young black males, 21 times more likely to be killed by police than their white counterparts. This is between 2010 and 2012. Um, and um, let's see, federal data show the median wealth of white households is 13 times the median wealth of black households. Just a couple mm-hmm. of data points. Yeah. Um, so let me, let's, uh, by the way, you said um, in the process of writing this book, you uh, looked back and you, you felt like you held some racist ideas. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. Well, yeah, I mean, once I defined... A racist idea, uh, you know, and and once I realized the principal principal mission of racist ideas, basically the effect of racist ideas, and 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 once I found that that effect, that mission has historically been to suppress resistance to racial discrimination. Because what happens is, if you have racial disparities, there are only two causes. That there are only two causes as to why that racial disparity exists. Either there's something wrong with a racial group, either there's something wrong with black people, either the reason why 
white people have 13 times more wealth than black people is because black people are not saving their money because black people do not know how to take care of their money because something is wrong or inferior about black people or discrimination. Uh, The same thing with the disparity between uh, police violence. You know, either it's the case that young black males are 21 times more likely to be reckless with the police or it's something wrong with the police. It's something wrong with societal policies. And and so when you believe that there's something wrong with black people, you simultaneously don't see racial discrimination. And and so I think black people, too, and I, I realized that myself, you know, I had uh, consumed racist ideas suggesting that the problem of inequality was the problem of black people, which prevented me from seeing that actually it was racial discrimination. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you write there, and, and you call it a folktale, you say, I was taught the popular folktale of racism. And that this, I, you know, as I read this, I, I thought, well, that's that's what I've thought too, right? <laughs> that uh, ignorant and hateful people produce racist ideas, that these racist people institute then racist policies. But you're, you're, you're saying it's, we've got it backwards. Yes. And, and I think there, it's, it's quite complex, but I think the easiest way for us to understand it is we need we should distinguish between the producers of racist ideas and the consumers. So not the people who are reading the book, but the people who are writing the book that millions of people read, the people who are making the films that millions of people watch, the the people who are writing the columns that millions of people read. These producers of of these ideas are the people that I studied. Uh, and I distinguished them very clearly from the consumers. And I, I simply asked the question, why were they producing these ideas? Why did John C. Calhoun in 1837 stand up before his colleagues in the U.S. Senate and say slavery is a positive good? It's a positive good for black people. It's a positive good for America. You know, why did after the election of Barack Obama, uh, certain forces state that the nation is now post-racial? You know, why did these things happen? And I found that these people who were producing these ideas were actually quite brilliant. Uh, when, when you read Stamp from the Beginning, you're, you're going to read the creme de la creme you know, of American intellectualism. Uh, you also find people who had relationships with black people, uh, sexual or even romantic relationships with black people, people who uh, consider themselves to be very well-meaning, consider themselves to be friends of of black people who were producing uh, these ideas. So I I found that it wasn't ignorance or hate. Uh, I found that what was actually happening was you had racial inequities and then you had discriminatory policies that were causing those inequities. And the people who were producing these ideas we're typically producing these ideas to defend existing racist policies, to normalize those racial inequities, to say that black people were to blame for those inequities uh, as opposed to discrimination. And typically the reason why people produce these ideas is because those, inec- those policies benefited them. It benefited people to enslave black people and they wanted to continue to enslave black people and they didn't want people resisting that enslavement. So they tried to convince black people and 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 white people and Americans that these people should be enslaved because they're black. Uh, It benefited uh, southern landowners to 
it, it benefited Southern landowners that black people, black workers, black farmers uh, were were poor and even disenfranchised because it, it kept their labor cheap. And so they created these ideas that these people should be be tilling the land as opposed to running for Congress because it benefited them. And so that's that's what I sort of show that racist policies and the need to justify them actually have led to the production of racist ideas. And then those racist ideas have been circulated and then we consume them unknowingly and then became ignorant and hateful. Um, here's a uh, significant statement uh, from the book. You say the principal function of racist ideas in American history has been the suppression of resistance to racial discrimination and its re- resulting racial uh, disparities. So intentional um, to to keep the system in place, right, and, and to suppress dissent. Precisely. You know, because I, I think it, it makes sense in our time. You know, we've been arguing for years over why is it that so many black people are being killed by police. And there's either a problem with the criminal justice system or there's a problem with black people. And so those people who benefit from the criminal justice system, those 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 people who benefit from those the policies, those people who benefit from the mass incarceration of black people, those people who benefit from this idea the way we reduce violent crime is through more cops and more judges and more prosecutors and more uh, prison beds. The people who benefit from the status quo of the criminal justice system, of course they're going to make us believe that, no, they're not the problem, that that black people are the problem. So they can continue to benefit from those policies that actually cause uh, us to uh, continue to mass incarcerate and even kill black people. So uh, I I guess a big purpose of the book is to examine these racist ideas. Uh, To to what end? What what do you want people to take away from the well, I first, this trip. I first wanted people to read the entire history of racist ideas. And so Stamp from the Beginning really lays out the entire history from their origins to the present. I wanted people to see the ways in which these racist ideas have impacted American history and the way American history has impacted these ideas. But I, I also wanted people to realize that most of the people reading this book are going to be consumers. And, and I want people to really think through the ideas that they have consumed over their lifetime and, and the way in which people produce those ideas because they wanted the, us, they wanted us to see people as the problem as opposed to policies. And, and when we start seeing people as the problem, that leads to divisions. And when we start having divisions in, you know, in, our, in our communities, that leads to many of the problems we're having in our society and, and problems that certain people benefit from, but most of us don't benefit from. And so I'm hoping that people will be able to see, just like I saw through researching for this book, the ways in which they have been manipulated by racist ideas. Hmm. You write, and, and, and this one would hope is self-evident and that uh, everyone accepted this, but, uh, but I can understand why you, why you write this. You say, <laughs> under our different-looking hair and skin, doctors cannot tell the difference between our bodies, our brains, and the blood that runs through our veins. Um, you know, the concept of race is is much more idea-driven, right, and culture and uh, political system and economics. Yeah, so we, of course, many of us, many Americans uh, still believe uh, 
that race is a biological construct. In other words, that there's a such thing as white genes or black genes or black diseases or white diseases or, or white blood or black blood um, or that the white race is this biological entity that is suddenly under attack <laughs> um, by these, quote, non, non-white biological entities, which is why white people need to keep their race pure. Like all of these ideas uh, are widely held, even though they have widely been disputed. Uh, and in 2000, uh, scientists finally uncovered the entire human genome, and they found that the racial groups, that the races, are actually 99% the same. And in fact, there's more genetic diversity within Africa than between Africa and, let's say, Europe. And the way that operates is, Western Africans, to give an example, uh, are more genetically the same than Western Europeans than they are East Africans. But, you know, that's the fact. That's science. And so this idea that because the color of someone's skin or the texture of someone's hair is different, that they somehow are genetically or biologically different has is is scientifically just not true. And, And it's indisputable. Let's take a brief break. When we come back, we have more <clears throat> with uh, Ibram Kendi. He is a winner of the National Book Award from 2016 for his uh, book, Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. Uh, when we come back, I want to uh, talk about uh, this idea in Dr. Kendi's book. Uh, he says there have not been two sides to this argument. There have been three sides. I want to talk a bit about that. More following this break. Support for the UPR-produced podcast, Debunked, is made possible by the Utah Division of Substance Abuse and Mental Health, providing substance use disorder, mental health, and suicide prevention resources throughout Utah. Information at dsamh.utah.com. This is Science by the Slice. Carbon monoxide, friend or foe. Because carbon monoxide can be lethal, we equip our homes with monitors and take care not to idle cars in enclosed spaces. But USU scientists say the deadly gas in small quantities could save our lives. Aggie chemists are developing tiny molecules that could release carbon monoxide in specific doses at specific times at specific locations in the body to reduce inflammation, promote healing, and fight cancer. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu slash science. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in 2017. We're back with Ibram Kendi. He is author of a National Book Award winner, Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America. Um, And uh, we're talking uh, on tape, this uh, part of the program. And you can get a comment through to us uh, at upraxis at gmail.com, but uh, no phone calls in in this uh, hour. 
Dr. Kendi, I mentioned before the break, uh, I want to get into this. You say that uh, you, as you did this whole sweep of history Mm -hmm. from Cotton Mather and and before to uh, down to the the last of your tour guides, you call them, is is Angela Davis. Mm -hmm. And we'll get into uh, some of that history. Um, You say historically there have been three sides to this heated argument. Segregationists, anti-racists, and assimilationists. I wonder if you could take us briefly through those three groups. Sure. So I think... One of the ways we can understand it is Jefferson's idea that all men are created equal. Um, and and a, he was challenging an idea that was actually quite popular at the time that all men are not created equal. So this concept that more specifically the racial groups are genetically and biologically distinct and that black people in particular are not only because they're genetically and biologically distinct, uh, they are permanently inferior. Um, and that black people are inferior by nature is what I call segregationist ideas. And so therefore, because black people are inferior by nature, racial inequality is permanent. Uh, and so this is the idea of segregationist that I chronicled in the book. The, on the other side of the debate, and, and I say debate because really since the beginning of this country, we've been trying to de- understand why racial inequality exists you know, throughout this nation's history. And segregationist state, it's because black people are by nature inferior, and so inequality is permanent. Well, anti-racist, I'm sorry, assimilationist, which is what I argue a second kind of racist idea, have stated that, no, the racial groups are created equal. Uh, The racial groups are biologically equal. But black people became inferior. Uh, So, yes, they are biologically equal, but they're culturally or behaviorally inferior. Black people are not inferior by nature, assimilationists would say. Black people are inferior by nurture. And so because of their, because they are inferior by nurture, we have the capacity to civilize and develop them. Um, And segregationists have said, no, you can't civilize and develop them because they're inferior by nature. They're biologically inferior. And so that has long been a debate within racist thought. Can black people be civilized? Uh, The... So the, 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 the idea that they shared was that black people are inferior. The idea that they diverged on was whether black people can be basically be made equal to white people one day. Hmm. Uh, anti-racists have, have disputed both a segregationist and assimilationist ideas and have stated that black people are not only equal biologically, But even though they may have cultural, even phenotypic differences, uh, we should not see difference as being inferior. Uh, And they've stated that that not only are the racial groups created equal, but that they are equal. And because the racial groups are equal, racial inequities in our society, anti-racists say, must be the result of racial discrimination. Hmm. I wonder, um, I want to get back into some of this history. It's fascinating history. You did a broad sweep of uh, a very wide scope um, of uh, racist ideas in America. I want to bring this forward a little bit of a discussion to today. Okay. Um, 
and you you write uh, if the purpose of um, rather the the post racial attacks triggered counterattacks from anti racists pointing out the racial discrimination from Twitter to Facebook etc cetera, etc cetera, uh, which then triggered counterattacks from post racialists who called these anti racist divisive and racist you're giving some of the the current uh, uh, recent history, which we're all familiar with. Assimilationists stuck in the middle considered the drumbeat of ill-conceived allegory of how far the nation had come and how far it still had to go. Considered themselves sort of moderate, mm-hmm. you know, in, in the middle. Yes. Uh, and that's sort of uh, sort of uh, where we are. So this, this picking up this idea of post, a post-racial America, this, mm-hmm. is, this has been an idea that's been taken up in, by, by the right wing, especially. Yes. Um, who... Who, who grew impatient with that we're still having this debate, I guess, in, in one in one respect. Well, I think in order for any American to claim that the nation, that this nation, with all of these racial inequities in literally every sector of society, from wealth to health to incarceration to education, there are all of these racial inequalities all, all around us. In order for an American to claim that the nation is post-racial, and which means that racial discrimination does not exist, in order for them to make that claim, they have to say that all of these inequities exist because of black inferiority. Because again, there's only two causes of racial inequities. Either there's something wrong with black people or there's racial discrimination. So when you say racial discrimination does not exist or is a trivial um, is trivial in American society, and you have a society of racial disparities all around you, what you're simultaneously saying is that the cause of those disparities are black inferiority. And, and, and really, every racist idea in history has been like a post-racial idea. It's caused people to not look for, let alone see, racial discrimination. It's caused them to think that the problem is black people. Mm. Now, you write a bit about uh, uh, President Obama, and uh, early in his administration, we had this uh, incident um, where uh, um, Henry Louis Gates, um, Harvard professor, was locked out of his house trying to get in. The police arrest him. Um, President Obama makes a comment, fairly, you know, fairly moderate comment, not not wild-eyed, um, and those who you might consider post-racialist really push back hard on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, because what, what post-racialists say is that racial discrimination doesn't exist. And so and, and so we should not be talking about race. And so when someone like President Obama or anyone else says racial discrimination exists, they say, no, you're the problem because you're talking about something that is not even a problem. Uh, and in fact... You're talking about racial discrimination. Barack Obama was talking about racial discrimination because he hates white people. Like that was the idea. And so the the assumption then from post-racialists is that if you challenge racial discrimination, then that must mean you don't like white people. It's the same sort of argument that people are making that have been people have been making for years about Black Lives Matter. You know, they're challenging racist cops. Uh, and so people are saying you're anti-cop. No, they're anti-racist cops, right? You know, many of these people have cops in their own families. Or what people are saying about these these athletes who are kneeling, you know, they're kneeling against police brutality. Instead, people are saying, no, you're disrespecting sort of the flag or, or the troops. And so it's a what people, what racists have long 
shrewdly done is they've misrepresented the anti-racist argument. You know, anti-racists say, I'm against racial discrimination. They say, no, you're not against racial discrimination. You're against white people. And then they critique their misrepresentation. You know, they said this for abolitionists. You know, abolitionists were like, we're against slavery. So what slaveholders said is, no, you're against Southern rights. You're against property rights. You're against America. Abolitionists were like, no, we're against slavery. And so they misrepresented what they were saying and critiqued their own misrepresentation. Of course, we know segregationists did the same thing. You know, segregationists said, oh, you civil rights activists are against states' rights. <laughs> no, we're actually against Jim Crow segregation. No, you're against states' rights. And, and you know, we have a states' rights based on our Constitution. Mm. And so that's what they have long done, and they continue to do that today. Racism, racist uh, to this day, is, is, is a powerful label, powerful mm-hmm. phrase, right? And, and so all sides try very hard to, 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 to not get labeled that way. Yes. Right? And I've actually found through researching for Stamp in the beginning that I had, had yet to come across an American who had been willing to identify their ideas as racist. In fact, what's happened is every group of, of people who I classify in, the, in Stamp from the Beginning as racist have tried to define their own ideas outside of racism. And so slaveholders did not think their ideas that black people are fit for slavery, they did not think those ideas were, were racist ideas. Though They thought that that was God's word or that that was science. Um, and it really every group of racists since then have, have tried to define racism outside of their ideas. And so I, and I think we do that every day. You know, no matter what we say, we then say, well, I'm not a racist, you know, as opposed to saying, well, maybe my idea is racist and I could maybe need to think, start thinking from a more anti-racist standpoint. And I think one of the reasons why I decided to begin the book by saying that I had held racist ideas, you know, is because, again, I realized that nobody was willing to say the obvious. And so I feel like I felt like in order to write this this book on racist ideas that I had to say that first. Hmm. Now, the uh, t- the title of your talk here at USU um, was uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist, right? And you write in your epilogue, and I want to treat this, and again, we'll, we'll get into some of the fascinating history, but um, there are some things you say, if you want to be an anti-racist, that you should not do, should stop using, that, that the anti-racists have tried over the years. And I, I guess you're saying these, these haven't worked, won't work. We should get away from these things. Yeah, so, you know, earlier we spoke about the sort of line of causation as it relates to racism. And we, of course, were taught that really the cradle has been ignorance and hate, and ignorance and hate led to racist ideas, and racist ideas led to racist policies. Well, I show in Stanford the beginning that it's quite the opposite, that racist policies lead to racist ideas, and racist ideas lead to ignorance and hate. And so that different line of causation necessitates a different solution, because if the fundamental problem is ignorance, it makes sense that our fundamental solution should be education. Right. If the fundamental problem is hate, 